I'm struggling deeply with my spiritual growth and having a hard time seeing God around me. I'm 80% sure that I'm going to heaven when I die. I know I'm saved, but I used to be more sure when I was younger. Doubts and anxiety abound, but I want reassurance. The pandemic really shook me up. I haven't had that aha moment. I don't know if I'm a Christian. I want to say that I am, but I still feel like there's a lot of things I don't know and understand. I'm 75% sure I'm going to heaven when I die. Tonight, I'm 100% sure I'm going to go to heaven when I die, but doubts have certainly been a struggle. A lot of times, I'm not 100% sure. I'm 100% sure today, but I have episodes of doubt. I'm 80% sure I'm going to go to heaven when I die. I want to be more sure. Some of you figured out what I just did. About a month ago, the last Monday night in August, we did a personal spiritual assessment, a survey, where 111 of you filled out the survey that had some questions on the front and on the back, and then we collected them and it gave us this snapshot insight into our young adult family. What I read were direct quotes, didn't make anything up from our assessment. Maybe you've asked questions like, am I really a Christian? Do I really believe in Jesus? Have I truly repented of my sin? Have I actually crossed the line? How can I be sure that I'm a Christian? If you're asking those questions tonight, or you've asked them in the past, I promise you're not alone. Maybe the most insightful question from our spiritual assessment, our survey that we did was the following. I am blank percent sure that I'm going to heaven when I die. It was a fill in the blank. 42% of the surveys indicated that they were less than 100% sure that they're going to heaven when they die. What does that tell me? That almost half of our young adult family is dealing with spiritual doubt, at least on some level. But we're supposed to be strong Christians. We're supposed to be confident. We're supposed to be sure. We're not supposed to have doubts. And it's taboo to talk about doubt in Christian circles. So if we feel this doubt, we feel this, am I really a Christ follower? Is it, is it legit? We feel that doubt. We stuff it inside. We sweep it under the rug, never to talk about it. If that's you tonight or it's been you in the past, you're not alone. And the assessment reminded me that it's time for us to have a conversation about assurance. It's time for us to have a family talk about doubt. So tonight I want to answer the question, how can I be sure of my salvation? How can I grow in my assurance? But to do that, we've got to lay a quick foundation. This is not an easy message for me to preach tonight because I have to speak out of two sides of my mouth. And I just want to let you in on the challenge that I'm facing uh, through this, this talk tonight. On one hand, I need to afflict the comfortable. The last thing that I want to do as a pastor is provide false assurance for someone who's not a genuine believer. But then we go to the other hand, the other side, and 
I also need to comfort the afflicted because I know that there's many here tonight who are dealing with spiritual doubt and they're genuine followers of Christ. You know Jesus, but for some reason or another, there's this, this root of doubt. And the last thing that I want to do for you is feed the monster of doubt. So I'm going to try to talk out of two sides of my mouth tonight because I need to maintain that tension. We have to do both. Comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. So tonight, if you're dealing with doubt or have dealt with doubt in the past, before we can talk about how to fix it or how to address it, we have to identify where it's coming from. We have to know the source. We have to know the root cause. And then when we identify the root cause, then we can talk about what to do about it. We can talk about how to fix it. So tonight, I've identified four possible causes, four possible roots of spiritual doubt. We'll work through them. If you have your handout, uh, there'll be some blanks that you can fill in. Is this list exhaustive? Probably not. Someone smarter than me can probably come up with more. But I think these four cover a pretty broad spectrum of where spiritual doubt, asking the question, am I really a Christian, where that can come from. So we're going to start with the most intense. We're going to start with the, the hardest root, and it's salvation. Here's what I mean by that. It's possible for someone who struggles with doubt, with spiritual doubt, to experience what I'll call genuine doubt because they aren't a follower of Christ. This might seem like an intense way to start, but it's the most important place to start because I know that not everyone who walked in those double doors tonight is a believer. Not everyone here tonight has turned away from their sin and trusted in Christ for their salvation. And if you're experiencing doubt tonight, if you're asking, well, am I really a Christian? It's possible that doubt could be genuine. It's possible that you might not be a believer. Now, before some of you start to tremble, how can we know where this doubt is coming from? We're going to go back to the gospel equation. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Alex, if you could put that up on the screen. The gospel plus Repentance and faith equals salvation, which leads to good works. Allow me just to talk through this for a moment. The gospel, it means good news, but the good news starts with bad news. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, the wage of our sin is death. None of us are perfect. None of us are even close to perfect, and we've earned by our sinful behavior eternity separated from God in a literal lake of fire. That's the bad news. But there's good news. Jesus, fully God and fully man, came to earth, lived the life we never could have lived. He died in our place on the cross. He rose from the dead on the third day, conquering sin and death once and for all. He offers us forgiveness and reconciliation and new life. That is the gospel. But just understanding the gospel isn't enough. We have to respond to the gospel in the right way. We respond with repentance and faith. Let me start with faith. Faith means to trust, not an obscure trust, but a specific trust, believing that when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for your sin and my sin, that he absorbed our debt. And repentance, it's actually something the Holy Spirit does in us when we believe, turning away from our old way of life and following after Jesus. Faith and repentance. That equals salvation, which leads to good works, which leads to a changed life. 
Sanctification, it's what we talked about a couple weeks ago, or a week ago, rather. Sanctification just means growing to look more like Jesus. It's the good works bubble, but sometimes it looks like two steps forward and one step back, but the goal is that over months and years, as we know Christ, we grow to look more and more like him. The best summary of the gospel equation from Scripture, I think, comes from Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, which says, by grace, we've been saved through faith. And it's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. That's the left side of the gospel equation. We're saved by grace through faith in what Christ has accomplished for us. But then verse 10 says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God's prepared in advance for us to do. After we become Christians, after we're saved, then we respond with good works. That's the gospel equation. But some of you have inverted the gospel equation, and made it what we'll call the good works equation. Alex, go ahead and put that up on the screen. The gospel plus repentance and faith plus good works equals salvation. Yeah, I'm going to know about Jesus. Yeah, I'm going to believe in Jesus, but I've, I've got to go to church. I've got to give to my church. I've got to get confirmed. I've got to take communion. I've got to be baptized. I've got to be a really good person. And then, then just maybe, I can be saved. There's a chance Many of you grew up in a faith tradition that preached the good works equation, that our salvation is contingent on what we do. Looking at our spiritual assessment, this definitely came out in a couple of the quotes. Here's two. I know that I'm a Christian because I live my life to the best, have the best possible impact on the people I interact with each day. It's subtle. But this individual's assurance is based on their behavior. They were 50% sure they were going to heaven when they die. Here's another. I'm 80% sure I'm going to heaven when I die. What if I'm not good enough? Hmm. Maybe you've asked the same question. What if you're not good enough? For both of those answers, they indicate they're finding their assurance in themselves, in their behavior. But think back to Ephesians 2. We're saved by grace through faith. It is not of ourselves, not by works. Here's an intense question, but I use it often. If you were to die tonight and stand before God and he was to say, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? If you were to die tonight and stand before God and he was to say, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? One of the most common answers that I hear is, I'm a pretty good person. My good's better than my bad, and I think God's just going to let me in. It's not a good answer. It's actually a really bad answer. Think of it this way. Imagine if every sin that I've ever committed was printed on a receipt. How long do you think that'd be? That would roll from here all the way down to County Market. I mean, come on. It'd be terrible. When people answer that question that way, they're saying, well... I hope that the receipt of good things that I've done makes it past county market. That's what they're saying. I just hope my good outweighs my bad. Is that God's standard? No, it's not. If you and I committed just one sin, we would be guilty to spend eternity separated from God in the lake of fire. And we might say, well, how is that fair? (laughs) Well, let me ask, have you committed just one sin in your life? Or have you committed just one sin in the last hour? Friends, We are so beyond guilty, it's not even funny. 
When someone asks, I hope I'm good enough to get to heaven, they're handing Jesus their receipt. They're handing God their resume. Saying, I hope this is good enough. Here's what my answer might be. I don't know if it's going to work that way or not, but my answer might sound like this. I don't deserve it, but I believe in Jesus. Here's Jesus' resume. Do you see the difference? The good works equation hands God our resume and says, I hope that I'm good enough. I hope I did enough. But the gospel reminds us that we're more sinful and depraved than we could ever imagine, but we're more loved and accepted in Christ than we could ever hope or dream. For us to find assurance of our salvation, we've got to let go of our resume and we've got to cling to Jesus' resume, who lived the life we never could have dreamt of living, who died in our place on the cross and rose from the dead on the third day. He did it. He did everything. And we simply respond to what Jesus has done with faith. That is the best news you will ever hear. Some of you are dealing with doubt tonight because your life looks like the good works equation. And you're asking, ah, I just hope I'm good enough. I'll never know I'm good enough because I look at my life and I mess up every day. Yes, you do. You don't have to be good enough because Jesus was perfect. And he accomplished salvation for you on the cross. All you have to do is believe. So how do we know? I have three diagnostic questions that connect to uh, the gospel equation. Here's the first one. The first bubble, do I understand the gospel? Then the second bubble, have I responded in faith and repentance? And then the third, which would be connected to the fourth bubble, do I see gradual transformation in my life? Those are three diagnostic questions for us to ask ourselves. Do you understand the gospel? Have you responded in faith and repentance? And do you see gradual transformation in your life? If, you answer, if your answer to those three questions is, is yes, then I believe you should have 100% assurance of your salvation. And here's why. Paul writes this in Ephesians 1. Listen to these words. In him, Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Once we become a Christian, we're adopted into God's family. And we can never be unadopted. God's not gonna kick us out of the family. Instead, we obey our heavenly father. We obey our dad because we've been adopted. Our obedience is a worshipful response. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 1 that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Because when you become a Christian, when you turn from your sin and trust in Christ, you receive the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who lives inside of you. That's a permanent relationship with God. It's incredible. Paul says the Spirit is our seal. The Holy Spirit is who we receive as a down payment of our eternal inheritance. And when God makes a down payment, he does not default on future payments. Because of the Holy Spirit, you and I can have security in our salvation. We don't have to be afraid of losing it. But as you look at those three diagnostic questions on your handout, if your answer to the first question is, no, I don't understand the gospel, don't leave tonight without talking to your leader, without talking to Bianca, without talking to Brian, without talking to me. It's the most 
important concept for us to understand. We have to make sure you understand the gospel. If the answer to that second question is no, then what's holding you back from trusting Jesus and following him? That'd be a great thing to talk about with someone that you respect. Now that third question, have I seen gradual transformation in my life? (laughs) That's probably the most complicated for a couple of reasons. What's the benchmark for gradual transformation? Well, let me tell you what it isn't. It's not perfection. And how do I know? Well, remind me, who wrote the book of 2 Peter that we've been studying so far this year? Peter. Peter's life was a roller coaster. Looked like this. He would take two steps forward and one step back, and two steps forward and three steps back. It was a roller coaster. But over time, Peter did this. The standard for sanctification is not perfection. Sanctification often looks like one or two steps forward and a step back. Now, if somebody looks at their life over a long period of time, not days or weeks, I'm talking months and years, and there's a flat line from when they become a Christian or backwards since when they became a Christian, there might be some room for doubt. But that third question gets even more complicated when someone grows up in a Christian environment. Some of you grew up in the church. Your before Christ days were protected and isolated. It's also hard for us to see growth in our own hearts sometimes because we see ourselves every day. Sometimes we've got to ask somebody that we know, a parent, significant other, a best friend, and ask, how have you seen my life change since I became a Christian? Be honest with me. But if somebody looks at their life, Let's say it's been two years since they became a Christian, or they thought they became a Christian, and they flatline, or they've gone backwards from where they were before Christ. It might be time for some tough questions. The temptation is to to try to clean up your life, to try to focus on the fourth bubble and staple fruit onto the fruit tree, but it doesn't work. If somebody looks at their life over the last two years and it's looked like this since they became a Christian, they actually have to look at the left side of the equation and ask, even harder questions. Do I understand the gospel? And have I responded in faith and repentance before they try to clean up their life? So do you understand the gospel? Have you responded in repentance and faith? Have you seen a gradual two-step forward, one-step back change in your life since you came to know Christ? If the answer is yes, praise the Lord. But if you're still experiencing spiritual doubt, then we've got to find another source. Let's move on to number two. Listen again to the first, or a couple verses from our text we looked at last week in 2 Peter. 2 Peter 1, verses 8 and 9. Peter writes this. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Okay, we've got to make sure we're on the same page. Peter talks about these qualities. He's referencing that long list that we talked about last week. Virtue and knowledge and self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. These qualities we can grow in as we grow in our relationship with Christ. We work on them, not as a way to earn our salvation, but as a way to respond to our salvation, a way to confirm our calling, as Peter says. And Peter says, whoever possesses these qualities and is growing in them is not going to be uneffective, unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To remove a double negative, if we grow in these qualities, 
then we're going to grow in our deep personal knowledge of Jesus. Growing in these qualities is a great way to grow in our relationship with Christ. So then uh, Peter flips it on its head in verse 9, and he says, but whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. It's powerful. Peter's saying that if we don't have these qualities, remember, there's no neutral. We're even moving, either moving forward or we're moving backward. Whoever lacks these qualities is blind, having forgotten their forgiveness. If we're not intentionally growing in our faith, if we're not working on these qualities, Peter says, we're going to forget that we've been forgiven. The distinction is important. Peter's not saying that we've lost our forgiveness. He's not saying that we've erased our forgiveness, but he's saying that we forget it, that we can't see it. He says we're suffering with something called spiritual nearsightedness. Here's our second source, is what we'll call spiritual apathy. Spiritual apathy. When we aren't intentionally growing in our relationship with Christ, there's a good chance that we're not going to have the assurance that we want. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying that we have to grow in these qualities in order to earn our salvation, but instead, if we're struggling with our assurance, there's a chance that we might be struggling with what Peter calls spiritual nearsightedness. What's the fix for this condition? It'll be easy for me to say, well, get to work, but it's deeper than that. That's just a Band-Aid. We need something deeper than a list of things to do. We need Jesus. We need a deep, real relationship with our Savior. We have to abide. That's our response to spiritual apathy, is we have to abide. That word comes straight from John chapter 15. And Jesus is having the, one of the last conversations he ever had with his disciples. They had just left the upper room. They're on their way to the, the garden and I imagine that Jesus walks right past uh, a vine, a vineyard with grapes. And here's what he says. I'm the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine. And you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I love that text. But we probably don't use the word abide every day, do we? <laughs> if you're reading out of the NIV, I think it uses the, the word remain. It's a good translation. But maybe I can provide a word picture that might help us get a picture of, of what this word means. Think about a turtle. A turtle abides in its shell. It remains in its shell. If a turtle found a way to escape from its shell, it wouldn't last very long. It's utterly dependent on its shell for protection and life and survival. Our relationship with Jesus should look a lot like a turtle's relationship with its shell. We can't bear fruit unless we abide. We can do nothing unless we abide, unless we remain. There's a chance that you've been suffering with spiritual doubt because you've been trying to live like a turtle without a shell. You're trying to do life without Jesus. You're not doing a great job of abiding in him. I learned a lot from our assessments. 
And one of the things I learned <laughs> is that as a whole, uh, young adults isn't great at Bible reading. One of my favorite questions was, my Bible reading lately looks like blank. And you got to write whatever you wanted. Here's some of my favorite answers. Dusty. Insightful. Non-existent. <laughs> Poop. That was a quote, right? I'm just quoting someone. Not great. <laughs> Absolute garbage. The bare minimum. Sporadic. Or my personal favorite, cheeks. <laughs> and no, I did not know what that meant. So I needed to connect with one of my relevance coaches and ask what that meant. And if you don't know what it meant, just ask someone under the age of 20 and they'll be able to tell you. <laughs> Spending time in Scripture is one of the best ways we can abide. Spending time in God's Word is one of the greatest ways that we can remain with Christ. Half of you at the table right now are asking, what does that mean? <laughs> it just means it's bad. Let's leave it at that. But for us, spending time in God's word is one of the greatest ways that we can abide, that we can remain. We've got to be spending time in scripture and we have to make it a priority in our life. Not just to check a box, not just to be able to say, I'm a good Christian, I did my Bible reading today, but to know Jesus. Prayer is another excellent way for us to abide. We've been receiving all sorts of challenges in prayer lately, from the camp out to Brian's comments after our assessment to Andrew's third Monday sermons recently, prayer is our lifeline which connects us to our Heavenly Father. It's another way to abide, not as a way to check our box uh, or work through a prayer list, but to connect with Jesus. Because abiding is more than something that we do. It's a way that we live our life in constant communion with Christ, living with Him, not just for Him or from Him, realizing that we have a relationship with our Lord and Savior. Are you dealing with doubt? Well, it could be because of spiritual apathy. All of us have to learn to abide. Be like a turtle. Let's move on to our third source, which is closely connected to number two. I'll start with a story. A couple weeks ago, I was with a young man from our young adult family, and we were just having a great conversation. We are having a deep conversation about life and we started talking about the spiritual assessment. We started talking about some struggles that he'd been having recently. And, and I realized that, that a certain temptation had just really been weighing him down. I mean, he had a lot of victory in the past, but recently wasn't having the victory that he wanted. It had been really hard. And as I kept talking, I referenced the spiritual assessment and said, well, what about that, that question on the back page? I'm blank percent sure I'm going to heaven when I die. I was surprised to hear him say, 80%. Here's why I was surprised, because I know him. I've seen God work in his life. Obviously, I, I don't know people's hearts, but we've talked about the gospel, and I see evidence. I see the good works. I'm thinking he should be 100% sure. 80? Why? Well, does personal sin impact our assurance? Absolutely. Remember what Peter said in 
1.9, if we don't have these qualities, we'll be so nearsighted that we're blind forgetting our forgiveness. And since there's no neutral, either we're moving forward or backward, the opposite of pursuing these qualities on one hand is spiritual apathy. But on the other hand, the opposite is personal sin. That's our third source would be personal sin. Habitual sin struggles in someone's life can cause them to deal with doubt. I've seen this over and over again in conversations I've had with people in our young adult family who know Jesus, who believe in Jesus, who've turned away from an old way of life, but there's this sin struggle. There's this one thing that they just keep going back to, this sin that they just can't seem to get a handle on. And, and you want to change. You really do. Maybe there's seasons of victory, but then you find yourself struggling in the same way. Does that describe you? Are you experiencing doubt because of sin? Certainly, there's a lot of different sins that could fall under the umbrella that might cause spiritual doubt. I just want to highlight one tonight, the one that I'm convinced is the most relevant, the one that I'm convinced is the most acute, the one that I'm convinced is the most pandemic, and likely the most spiritually crippling. That's sexual sin. God as our creator has defined our sexual ethic. God makes the rules. We don't. Here's a standard. Any sexual activity outside the boundaries of a marriage between a man and a woman is sin. But I'm convinced that God's way is not just the right way. It's the best way. And we've likely experienced this to be true. Actually, all of us have, because sin always overpromises and underdelivers. Satan gets us to believe two lies when he tempts us, at least he's trying to, that the pleasure of sin will be greater than it actually is, and the consequences will be less than they actually are. God's not trying to keep us from pleasure. His plan is for our best. And I've seen it over and over again, that when someone is struggling with sexual sin, it leads to spiritual doubt. Is that you tonight? Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's sleeping with your significant other or anything in between. If you're struggling without much success, it's time to take a bold step and ask for help. That's our response is to seek support. Seek support. And this certainly applies to any sin struggle that might be the source of spiritual doubt anything beyond sexual sin, but I want to focus our application from this response specifically on sexual sin. I have a bold step of application tonight. My favorite resource on the topic of purity is Finally Free. Many of you have heard me talk about it before. I've gone through it with individuals dozens and dozens of times, and I've watched God use this resource to bring about radical transformation in people's lives in the area of personal purity. I believe in this resource so much that I have 50 copies sitting in my office. And I'll make a deal with you that if you're willing to read the entire book and go through it with someone else, that we will get you a copy. But even beyond just reading the book, at the end of the night, we'll have a, a very simple confidential way to sign up for what we call an, a, a finally free accountability group. We did this a year ago. It was incredible to see what God did. That we quietly, confidentially put together a group of three or four individuals of the same gender who do an eight-week study providing the tools and the accountability necessary to overcome some of these struggles in their life. 
So if you know that this struggle is real and that you're not having much success, I'd encourage you to sign up for one of those groups. The reality is that some of you face doubt because of sin, but it's not what I'd call a present tense sin. It's what we call a past tense sin. There are things that aren't in your life anymore. There are things that you've already asked for forgiveness for, things you've already repented of, things that make you think, because what I did, yeah, maybe I'm not a Christian. Listen to these two quotes from our spiritual assessment. I'm 95 to 100% sure I'm going to heaven when I die. I know that I am. But my fear and shame for the things I've done make me think I won't be let in. Even though I know Jesus died for me and I've been saved by him. Here's another. I know I'm a Christian because I know the Lord is my personal savior and I believe in his work on the cross. The biggest obstacle for my spiritual growth is spiritual attacks of guilt that make me too ashamed to draw near to him. My heart goes out to both of these individuals who are dealing with doubt, not because of something in the present, but because of something in the past. The enemy is using guilt and shame to keep them as far away from God's presence as he possibly can, to cripple you, to create doubt, to keep you out of Scripture. Just reminds me of what John writes in 1 John 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. But if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word isn't in us. What a great truth. See what John does. He does not say that we're going to be perfect. Actually, he says that if we claim to be perfect, that we are self-deceived unbelievers. That's what he says. Ouch. (laughs) But each of us need to practice confession. When we sin, we go to God and confess. He forgives. He cleanses. There's not a caveat in 1 John 1, 9 that says, God will forgive all sins except. It's not there. If you're dealing with doubt over sin, in the past that's already been forgiven, go to 1 John 1, 9 and preach the truth of forgiveness to yourself because the enemy is attacking you with doubt. That's our fourth source of spiritual doubt. It's spiritual warfare. Satan's smart. He's been around the block a lot longer than you and I have. And he's developed some battle tactics over the years that are highly effective. Sometimes he likes to tempt believers with a thought like, you're not a Christian. You're not saved. You're a fake. You can't be forgiven. You can't be loved by God. Friends, those are thoughts from the enemy. But when a genuine believer believes thoughts like that, just think of what happens. We stop praying because we're too scared to talk to God. We stop reading the Bible because it hurts too much. We stop serving because we feel like we're being a fake. We stop sharing our faith because why would we share something that we're not even sure is true in the first place? 
Spiritual doubt cripples believers. It keeps us ineffective and unfruitful. So if you're dealing with doubt, you know, you're a Christian, you're not dealing with habitual sin in your life, you're working to engage in spiritual disciplines, but there's still this doubt. I believe it's from the enemy. So what do we do? One, we have to expose the lie. Expose the lie. You need to talk about the doubt with a mature brother or sister in Christ. Don't keep the temptation to yourself. Don't believe the lie that you're, you're the only one in the room tonight that's dealing with doubt. Talk to someone you respect about what you're experiencing. And then two, meditate on the truth. Find passages of scripture that fight against this lie from the enemy. Romans 8, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, John chapter 10, Titus 3, 4 through 6, 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21. The list could go on and on of incredible passages that remind us of the security that comes through what Christ has done on our behalf. Use the sword of the Spirit to fight against the enemy. Use it, memorize it, recite it, put it on your bathroom mirror, put it as the background on your phone. This is one of the ways that Satan attacks. And I'll never forget when he attacked me with doubt. I just graduated from Bible college with a Bible degree. I was working at a church. I was leading worship every Sunday. I was mentoring. I was discipling. I was taking seminary classes. And then there was this thought. What if you're not really a Christian? What if you haven't really repented? What if you didn't actually cross the line? What if, what if you're a fake? I never thought things like that before. But it just kept coming again and again and again for months, and I didn't know what to do. I wasn't going to go talk to my boss who I was terrified of. Like, sorry, I don't know if I'm a Christian. <laughs> <laughs> Looking back, I probably should have because he would have been really helpful. But I had to expose the lie, and I had to meditate on truth, because it was coming from the enemy. But I'll never forget, a couple months into that, that battle with doubt, I was alone in my room, it was late, and that thought just <laughs> kept running through my mind. I couldn't get it out. But one of my friends, one of my closest friends, had just recorded a, a song that was, the lyrics, David Crowder's song, was basically right out of The Prodigal Son. Just a beautiful song about God's love for us. And God put that song in my mind. And I played it, and I was in my room, and this fluid started coming out of my eyes. And, and God used that moment where the Holy Spirit talked to my human spirit and said, not in an audible word, it was almost like he said, you're my son. Now, was it perfect after that? No, it wasn't. But God gave me a moment that I could hang my hat on. That I'm his son. And tonight, I'm convinced some of you need to have the same moment. And we're going to do something a little different tonight. Bobby's going to come up. You can come up now if you want, Bobby. And he's going to play uh, a song of response. It's not the same song, but this is an incredible song about the foundation that we have in Christ. But we want to give you a chance to respond in maybe a way that's a little different tonight. Brian is 
uh, has some cards. Um, we're just going to call them response cards. And there's a couple different ways that, um, that you can respond to the message, a couple different options. It's, it could be as simple as asking for prayer or asking to meet with someone. Another option you can check in the box is signing up for a finally free small group. But if you're struggling with, with doubt because of the enemy, then I, I hope this song can be an encouragement to you. If you're struggling with doubt because of personal sin in your life, it's time to seek support and ask for help. If you're struggling with doubt because of apathy, it's time to abide. And if you're struggling with doubt because you haven't yet crossed the line and you don't know Jesus, I hope you won't let this song finish before you decide that you want to follow Jesus. Father, may those words sink deep into our heart. May you comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable tonight. That if there's any here that don't yet know you, may tonight be the night where they say, yeah, I'm ready to believe in Jesus because he's not going to fail. And for those that are here tonight that might be suffering with spiritual doubt, maybe it's from the enemy, maybe it's just because abiding has been hard lately. Maybe it's because of personal sin. May you speak to their hearts and remind them that they're your son and your daughter. May you give them the boldness and the confidence to take whatever the next step might be that's asking for help, that's meeting with someone, that's just sending a text to ask for prayer to let somebody else in. Father, may you do that work in their hearts. Not an easy thing to talk about, but an important thing. So may you guide our discussions in our small group, help us balance being vulnerable and genuine, but just having a great discussion together. So we give you this next uh, chunk of time tonight in Jesus' name.